So we have a new episode of Legends and Leaders, and it's great to have Adam Shire here. Adam, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Awesome. So Adam, I'd love to just start with your background. Were you always into technology as a kid? Um, how did this, this love and passion for technology and even more into the business um, sector develop as a child? Oh, sure. Um, so I guess I really got into computer software in high school. Um, this was way back long ago in the 80s. Uh, Rubik's Cube was big and I was a, a Rubik's Cube champion. And then computers arrived at our high school. So for me, there was a transition from Rubik's Cube to computers when I wrote my first ever software program, which was a program to solve Rubik's Cube. Uh, thereafter, I went, you know, when it was time to go to university, I said, what's the most interesting thing on the planet? If I'm going to be a, have a major, what should I focus on? And for me, it was the human mind. I mean, we are miracles. All of the subtle genius things that we all do every day was incredible. So I got into technology taking a 360 degree look at how we work. So I took linguistics, psychology, sociology, neuroscience, computer okay. science. All of this was to try to learn how do we do what we do. Mm -hmm. And you decided to get a degree in AI, right? And why decide to go the AI route? Um, was that even like a popular degree at the time? Uh, no, not really. I mean, um, but that was really the reason I wanted to try to understand how we work. And ultimately, um, I have a Bachelor of Arts in Computer Science, which is an even more rare degree for the time. But it shows that it wasn't just the technical side that interested me. It was really, you know, everything. How, how do we do what we do? And, and mm -hmm. uh, I just think we're, we're miracles. Yeah. So how does the mind and, and AI and, and computer science, like how do they correlate with each other? Like what, what fascinated you in computers that the mind overlapped with? Sure. I mean, so we do things that seem so easy to us, but when you actually sit down at a computer where you have to express precisely how it's done, um, it's, it becomes more difficult. So for instance, uh, Later on, I got into language-oriented technologies like Siri and others. I give this example. I said, if I were to say, um, book a four-star restaurant in Boston, instantly you know what I'm talking about. But you don't realize there are 13 Bostons in the United States. So which one am I talking about? The close one, the big one, the state capital? How do you figure it out if it's ambiguous? The, the word book means not only make a reservation, but of course it's a physical book, but it's also the name of a city in the United States. And star is the name of the city in the uh, city in the United States. So if I say book and star in Boston, which city am I talking about? And on and on, there's so many ambiguities um, in language and yet instantly humans can do it. If you try to get a computer to do it and you realize every word in the human language is a business name or a city name also, it's it's a lot harder than it that it seems. I'm sure. Yeah. And, and so when you were when you were you know trying to understand this context aspect, how did that correlate into your developments with AI and, and with Siri? Like, what was the first thought of your developments in in terms of this computer brain like um, like similarity similarities? Yeah. Thank you. So I was always interested in in how we do what we do, and in trying to create tools that can help. 
uh, augment human intellect. How can we make ourselves think smarter, do tasks more easily? And computers and software for me was really one of these ultimate tools. They can be, computers can be so fast, they can have so much knowledge, they can do computations far faster than any human. But humans do things that computers can't do. So I said, if we could bring the two together, this could really change the world. Um, I started out, my first version of Siri or a Siri-like system was in 1993. Wow. The year before the web existed. And at the time we had desktop computers, you'd load them up with software, you know, with your CD-ROM and your floppy disk. Uh, and I said, someday there will be content and services around the world that we want to access. And I never thought about web browsers and hyperlinks and that as a way to do it. I thought everyone would have an assistant and you could say, I want to know this or I want to do that. And the assistant's job would be to understand your language, break it into subtasks, route it to all the right machines around the world. Uh, and then help you get your task done uh, by coordinating this for you. So I built that in 1993. I've made probably 50 more versions uh, throughout the 90s, um, but the timing wasn't right to take it to a commercial venture until, until for me, it was 2007, 2008. So literally 17, 18 years later, that was the moment to try to take the Siri idea I had been playing with forever uh, to the world. And, and Adam, what type of like prototype or like, like what what was what was Siri really like until you know like during the yeah. stage like where was it at in two thousand seven two thousand eight like was it could you actually talk to it was it, were you talking to a computer like what was it like? Yeah, in the the version I had in nineteen ninety three was mm -hmm. actually on a tablet. PC kind of thing. So it was, looked a little like an iPad, a little chunkier. Um, you could, there was a graphical interface so you could use uh, a, a mouse or a pen. So you could use a pen and you could do writing or speaking. Now to do speech recognition, the bandwidth was so slow and it wouldn't fit on a little device. So what you would do is you would literally pick up a phone. They were like connected to the wall back then. Mm -hmm. and you would dial a number and it would say, hello, what is, who is calling me? And, and you would type in your username and your password. And if your tablet was with the same username, the two would join, huh. join session. So you could talk into your phone, the words would show up on your device. You could correct them with your pen if you wanted. And then you could send out this request to any um, set of services. Think of them as web services. Um, you know, connected to the network. And as new services connected, what you could do and say literally expanded uh, and changed. So it was like a continually growing, evolving set of services. You could task individual ones, or you could ask for problems that would require multiple services to work together, to compete, to cooperate. So it was a very dynamic, um, you know, think of it like the web, but early on, but in this time, rather than a browser, you're speaking to all the web services in the world, all the websites, and they're working together to help you get the job done. Mm -hmm. And when you were building this originally, did you think like, hey, this is going to wind up on mobile devices and people are going to be talking to it? Was that like the original vision, but we weren't there yet, so you tried building something different? 
well, it was a mobile device. It was like a little tablet. So I, I yeah. believed we would access it from everywhere. Um, that if you just had a phone, you could pick up the phone and call your assistant and it would respond in a pure voice, voice only metaphor. If you just had a, your desktop, you could bring up your interface to your assistant and you'd be typing and clicking with your mouse. If you're on a tablet, you're using a pen or, or your finger. And if you have more than one, if you have the phone and the tablet or the phone and the desktop, now you can combine in what what's called multimodal ways. You could be talking and pointing and clicking and writing and drawing, you know, all through the interaction to, to express what you wanted to do. So did you think that like this was a revolutionary idea when you were building it out initially? Like you never saw any <laughs> other product like this. And then like, was that what you were thinking when you were building it? Like you really believe that? Um, I, I never believed that it would change the world. Uh, I can't be that bold. Okay. But for me, I was just like thinking about the future and where is the world going and what do we want? I don't want to have to load my computer with software. I want to be able to access software and services elsewhere. But how do I discover them and how do I interact with them? Like, I, how am I going to know they're there? How am I going to? And so it was really just a curiosity and a personal exploration. I was doing this mostly on, on, on the side, right? It wasn't quite mm -hmm. my day job, although I would try to build something and then see if I could make that into my day job so I could work on it during the day a little more. But really for me, it was just, you know, playing and, and you know, being curious and, and just imagining and envisioning what, what could the future be like and how do I build it? Um, and then, you know, later on, I got the idea that, hey, you know, this might be just the thing to take to the world. People might want this and need it. And for me, the trigger moment where I transitioned from being a, a hobby, a, you know, a curiosity to, hey, this could be a company was when the iPhone arrived. Hmm. So I always talk about trends and triggers. And I, in, in 2004, for example, I made 10 predictions for the next 10 years of the web. 2004 for me was the 10th anniversary of the web. Where will it be going for the next 10 years? And then once I had these predictions, which I stated publicly, I looked for trigger moments. And those trigger moments all turned into companies. So for Siri, when I saw the iPhone, you may not remember, but many people thought the iPhone wouldn't succeed. They hmm. said only a tech you know, a telco, a, a telecommunications company would be sophisticated enough to, to build a phone. You need hardware and software and, you know, connections and why, and Apple just makes this little iPod device, right? They're not, it's going to be a fad. It'll fail. But one of my predictions was that the interface on mobile would change. And when I saw the iPhone and the pinch and zoom and apps, I'm like, I've been waiting for this. I know this will be successful. And I said, two years later, everyone else is going to realize it. Apple has just won the game. So every handset manufacturer, every telco, they'll be desperate to compete with Apple. So what's wrong with the iPhone? Well, the screen is small. It's hard to type on that soft keyboard. The bandwidth is so slow. It was almost a minute on 3G. To, to click a link and get a result back. 
And if you're going to buy something, what's that? Maybe 10 clicks, 10 minutes. No one's going to do that. I said, what if you could bring this Siri idea I've been working on for 17 years? What if we brought that to market? Because then in, you don't need to type in one request. You say, get me tickets to the basketball game tonight. And in one round trip, it'll say ready to go click to confirm rather than 10 slow clicks. So I said, this is the moment when everyone, every competitor to Apple will be desperate to one up the iPhone and I'm going to build the thing to give it to him. And then of course the irony is Steve Jobs saw it first. <laughs> so how did it come about like the relationship with Apple and with what you were building? Like, did you, were you at Apple at the time? Were you like, you just brought it to Apple? Like how did that happen? Yeah, great question. So, uh, so we were a small startup named Siri, about mm -hmm. 20 people, a little bit more than 22 people. And after two years of work, we launched a free app in the app store uh, mm. called Siri. And it was different than the Siri that we have on our phones today. I, I, I love that version. You know, I'm mm. as an entrepreneur, you pour in so much passion and thought into this thing that I will always have a connection to that version. Uh, but we launched a free app. Uh, people started downloading it, talking about it. I remember one guy tweeted, it's like someone came out of the future and said, here, you've got to try this app. And I'm like, yes, that's what I was going for. <laughs> um, and two or three weeks later, Steve Jobs calls our office unannounced. Uh, hmm. The phone rings. We hear the voice. Hey, it's Steve. What you doing? Come over to my house tomorrow. <laughs> we went over and we were like, Steve Jobs was calling us. This is crazy. <laughs> like, how did he get the number? Because because Siri, I don't know if people know this, but Siri means secret in Swahili. And we started out as a stealth company. Our domain name was literally stealthcompany.com with a dash. <laughs> and so we had no website, no phone number. And yet Steve Jobs was calling us. We went to his house. Uh, we talked about for about three hours about the future and technology and AI. Uh, he said he wanted to buy the company. We said, Oh, my gosh, thank you. We're flattered but we're not interested. Goodbye. Thanks. And we left. Oh my uh, true, true story, but he's nothing if not persistent. And I think at one point he called us 30 days in a row, like never missing a day. He was calling, really? calling us. Yeah. And, um, eventually he and Scott Forstall convinced us that they understood our full vision and would support it. And we decided we would change the world more with Apple than independently. Uh, so we sold to Apple. Uh, we worked about 18 months um, on the new version of Siri that was embedded uh, in all the iPhones, the one that you know and love, hopefully love today. Uh, <laughs> I ran all of the backend and AI and data and servers for that team. Um, and yeah, so that's how we kind of got into Apple. Yeah. And so once you were building out this new like virtual assistant that was more, it was talk, talk to it based um, for mobile, right? So you're, you're building out this product and did, was Steve, like, was, did he help shape the vision for, for this? Like he knew what, in his mind, like, this is what I want to buy the company for. This is what we want to do. And I need you guys to build this. Like it was pretty straightforward. Oh, absolutely. Um, at that time, Apple didn't do research. If they uh -huh. acquired a company, they had a very specific plan and product idea and reason that they were bringing this team in right it was it was 
it was not like, oh, here's a company and let's just buy it. It was like, no, 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 we're going to bring them in and we're going to build this and it's going to be amazing. Um, so Steve was heavily involved, like in the, in the early days. So mm -hmm. it took about 18 months from when we were acquired to when we launched. Um, we got about half of that time. Steve was um, still healthy and active and um, he put so much love and thought into this product. We, we would fight about different uh, <laughs> things and people say, what was Steve Jobs like? And I said, here's for me, the defining quality. Um, first of all, he wanted to win. He had a burning desire to succeed. You'd think he's already transformed so many fields, movies with Pixar and computing mm -hmm. with the Mac and mobile with iPhone and music with iPod, all of this. I think he could just chill a little bit, but nothing chill about Steve Jobs. Like he was, he had a fire, a desire to win. And mm -hmm. he, he, you know, some people feel like they're the smartest person in the room. Steve was always looking to be challenged and hmm. always looking for an idea that went against his current opinion because he didn't need to be right himself. He didn't need to be the right person. He needed to get it right. And so he was always like challenging. Now, if you had a different opinion and often I did, he would, he would say, what, wait, 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 no, no, no. And we would go at it. Right. Um. And, um, if you could defend your position with logic and data, he would listen and, and take that into account. And he would say, hmm, interesting. Okay, I'm going to think about that. And sometimes it went my way and sometimes it went uh, another way. Um, but he al I always felt that he heard me. He thought about it. He made a decision and then he said, why? Uh, now, if you couldn't back up your decision, he would like knock you aside. Like, don't, don't waste my time. Right. I, we've got stuff to like, you don't know what you're talking about, but I never had that problem. So we always had these, these discussions, um, you know, after about nine months, he got pretty much too sick to show up at Apple anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, so Siri launched October 4th, 2011. And Steve died the very next day. Wow. And his admin wrote to me a few years ago and said, I've been meaning to tell you this for a decade. Uh, Steve was clinging to life um, to, to see the launch of Siri. He, he had put so much into it and he cared so much about it. Uh, it gave me chills when, when she told me that, but I, I absolutely believed it. I know he was watching the launch from his house. Um, and I like to think that he said, this is good. AI is going to come. Apple will be dominant uh, for the next decade. And the interesting thing is just as he's revolutionized the vision for music and computers and all of these different areas, you could argue that Steve kicked off the AI revolution mm -hmm. because um, when he had acquired Siri, he went on the All Things Digital uh, conference and Walt Marsberg asked him, why did you buy that search company? And he said, they're not a search company. They're an AI company, an artificial intelligence company. And no one knew what he meant because for the last 20 years, artificial intelligence was not a term that was used. So he kind of, 
and had to explain what it meant. But then right after that, there was this chain of events that AI started eating the world, so to speak, taking over everything and showing up everywhere. The movie Her, um, IBM came out with their Watson, which was a Jeopardy playing program, on and on and on. Tesla started self-driving cars. AI was everywhere. Mm -hmm. But his invocation of that term might have been the first. Uh, and again, he didn't invent the mouse and he didn't invent um, really the iPod, but he saw the vision for it and took it and brought it to the world. And I think he had that vision ahead of people with AI and with Siri. Yeah. Agreed. Well, what was the launch like, Adam? You guys bring this product out. Was it, would everybody love it in the beginning or people just like, this is kind of crazy. Like what's my phone? How's my phone talking to me like this? What, what was it like? Yeah. Amazing question. So, uh, first, let me just say, this is, this is a, a tool or a trick that, that if you're an entrepreneur out there or a business person, or, um, here's something that I do that is so much fun. So when I'm starting a project, I try to visualize what would success look like. Mm -hmm. So I remember the day when I walked into a, an Apple store and we had just started Siri, we're like five people. And on the wall, you know, at this time, the, the iPhone had come out with apps and the app store is just starting. And on the wall, they were promoting apps. They had icons of all the biggest, most successful companies in the world in an Apple store on the wall. There was Google, there was Skype, there was Pandora, there was, you know, Expedia, all of these like tens of thousands of people. And so I said to myself, hmm, I'm going to, I like summoned up all my gumption and I said, someday right there on the wall next to Google and Skype and Pandora, Facebook. Siri is going to be a logo on the wall. I thought it was crazy. It seemed so ambitious, right? Mm -hmm. Crazy. Uh, so you asked, what did, what was it like when we launched? Of course, I had to go to an Apple store uh, to see, are people trying it? What's the feeling like? And as I walked up to the store, they had set up a plasma display right next to the front door. And they had Siri use cases spinning on a loop. And above it was the sign saying, introducing Siri. And I got chill because wow. that I had visualized this picture of wanting to be one icon out of a hundred. And now we're the, we're the front door. It was like my mind melted. Uh, so that was, that was like the first experience of, of seeing the Siri launch. Mm -hmm. uh, after that, um, you know, people were loving it. They were trying it, but. On the downside, um, you know, marketing at Apple had made predictions about how popular Siri would be. Mm -hmm. And it turns out Siri was so popular, they were off by several orders of magnitude. Wow, really? So it, they would have like a, a commercial on primetime TV where they would show a Siri commercial and they, in it there'd be an actor and they'd say something to Siri. It felt like everyone in America said, oh, that's cool. Let me try. I didn't know you could do that. Let me try that. And they all pick up their phone and at the same time talk to Siri. Now, at the time, if you had a 30-second utterance, that would consume one CPU on a computer 30 seconds real time. So speech recognition was roughly one times real time. Hmm. One computer for 30 seconds processing 30 seconds of audio. 
Now, if a million people pick up the phone, if 10 million people pick up the phone, in order to do it real time, you have to have 10 million computers sitting there yeah. waiting for the result. So our servers were burning, like burning. <laughs> we're trying to keep this up. ChatGPT, by the way, when they came out, they had this huge uh, adoption thing. And they just put this little website with a limerick saying, sorry, our servers are too slow, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Know, and, I, and it was so cute. And everyone's going, oh, that's cute. Well, for <laughs> us, they're like, Siri is slow. Siri is timing out. And, you know, I'm like, ah. It was <laughs> one of the most stressful times of my entire career. Uh -huh. uh, I, I remember opening up my, my iPhone and to the stock app. And there was a news story that said, Siri goes AWOL, Apple stock dips. And in my sleep-deprived state of mind, I'm like, if, if we can't get this working, Apple stock will crash, tech sector is all connected, mutual funds all have Apple, it'll all crash, the world is going to end, we're all going to die. It was so much stress, so much stress. But our team was incredible. We were sleeping on army cops, literally, for an hour or two at Apple for weeks at a time. But things stabilized. Wow. Uh, we managed to, to handle the load, uh, and then it just took off and people loved it. People, it was going viral. Uh, you know, people were coming up with fun things that it would say they would do fun things that they could use it for. And, um, yeah, it was an amazing time, but boy, that it was so popular. Uh, it, it went, it brought stress to me, on on that initial launch. I'm sure. <laughs> So, in, you know, you mentioned ChatGPT, and now there's the Vision Pro headset. How do you think AI is going to change with augmented reality and VR and uh, and what we're going to see in terms of virtual assistants? Like, how much different do you think it will be? Yeah, it's funny. The first virtual reality experience I had was also in 1993, okay. uh, 30, 30 years ago today. The pixels weren't quite as bright and high resolution. But the experience was very, very similar. So mm -hmm. um, it's pretty interesting. Um, so f the way I think about it, um, well, first on virtual reality and augmented reality. So in the past, the two have been kind of separate things. I feel that VR, it's very compelling, but it's going to be niche. It's going to be best used for gamers, et cetera. People, I think at some level want to live in this world. Mm -hmm. um, and so augmented reality is, is going to be where, when it goes mainstream, it's, it's kind of what's required for it to go mainstream. And Apple with Vision Pro has done a really interesting thing where they can kind of switch back and forth between virtual reality and augmented reality. And you can be in kind of a virtual reality experience, but if a human walks up to you, they can kind of pierce it. And you can kind of set environments on your augmented reality to have more or less real things. So I, I think they've done some real innovation there. Mm -hmm. However, <laughs> uh, I, I have this uh, prediction pattern, which I call 10 plus. Okay. So if you think about when was the first transformative user interface paradigm that emerged, I'd argue it's around, around 84. Uh, when the mouse and Windows, Apple and, and Microsoft came out with Windows. And we had to learn about how to use how to use a mouse, how to use uh, you know graphical windows, all of that. 
first time. About 10 plus one years later, 95, the web really emerged and started taking off mainstream. And it was a new paradigm that added capabilities. It didn't replace the, the mouse and the windows, but now you could compute using other people's machines around the world uh, and services. So you had to learn, but you had to learn bookmarks mm -hmm. and hyperlinks and URLs and all these new terms. 10 plus two late to 10 plus two years later, 12 years later from 95, you got 2007 mobile takes out. Now it doesn't replace the web and it doesn't replace the, the, the desktop and, and, and windows, but now you can, you're not chained to sitting at your desk. You can walk down the street. You can be on a park bench. You can be anywhere computing. Uh, and the app store with pinch and zoom again, revolutionized that. So hmm. I had been saying that in 10 plus three years later from the app store, so 2021, a new paradigm for interaction would emerge and it would be the conversational system. And of course I had started Siri and then I did a company called Viv, which hmm. sold to Samsung. We got our technology onto hundreds of millions of devices, um, kind of a predecessor to ChatGPT. Um, I felt that an ecosystem as important as the web and mobile would emerge and language would be the key driver. And right on time, if you take right between GPT-3, uh, June 2020, and ChatGPT, November uh, 2022, right there, 2021-ish, uh, is um, a platform that's going to be as important as the web and mobile that's language powered. So your question about, so that, that gives the importance that I believe with, with chat GPT and large language models and generative AI, I think it's going to change every industry, every consumer, and we're going to spend 10 plus four years really understanding how to apply this logic. So in 2035, we'll be ready as humans to consume a new interface paradigm. And I think it will be augmented reality. So the Vision Pro is like, you know, the very first step and it's got some great ideas, but it is not consumer ready. We don't have the killer apps. We don't have the experiences, the app stores. This is meant for developers and to kind of create just like Siri seeded the conversational experience 2011, but it was 10 years later, roughly 10, 12 years later, before it really took off uh, or started to take off that paradigm. I think it's the same with Vision Pro and you know MetaQuest and others, but seeding the requirements so that 2035 is my prediction when it will go mainstream and we'll have very different hardware we'll have a battery that lasts longer than two hours so you can do more than watch one move you know we need to get through a full day there's a bunch of things but you know that that's how i feel about uh conversational ai it's here now and augmented reality you know a couple of, maybe a decade yeah I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of the direction we're heading in. Uh, it's definitely taken some time and we don't have a mass market product in terms of price point that also could replace the phone. Like the phone is, it's only, it's, it's, there's only so much improvement currently going on with phones and it's got to go to some sort of computing platform that's next, but there's not something mass market viable. So I definitely 
agree with you there. Um, in terms of your developments with with Bixby, like how did how did that come about? Like why start a whole nother voice, um, you know, voice AI company after already spending so much time with one beforehand? Yeah, well, I mentioned I, I had this vision going way back, and it was always about having an open ecosystem. It needed to be a paradigm scale thing, and I thought I could do that at Apple. And Steve Jobs understood the whole vision and said he would support it. He said, right now, the version of Siri you have deals with web services in the cloud. Apple still cares about apps. So what we're going to do is bring Siri down into the phone. Uh, we're going to enable uh, uh, it to be able to control apps and we'll start with Apple's apps, you know, the built-in ones, maps, stocks, weather, music, et cetera. But we'll do it in such a way that it's meant to be opened up to all the apps in the App Store and all of the services in the cloud. And when you do that, Siri will become an important interface component, a paradigm for how we interact with everything at every step. So that was always the vision. But when he passed away the day after Siri launched, there was a lot of org chart change um, and the vision got lost. Everyone was so amazed that after, that Siri could say funny things when you responded to questions that the mm -hmm. vision got lost. And I did my best internally to say, no, that was just step one. We Now we need to get to step two, which is about opening up the ecosystem, just like the iPhone did. It had 10 apps. You don't stop there. You open it up to millions of apps, right? That, that has to be the next thing we work on. And I could not get that. Um, that, you know, for whatever reason, given the people who came after that vision got lost at that time. Uh, so I said, I believe so much on the, in the vision, I stepped away. I, I walked away from millions of dollars. They were, mm. you know, dangling and, and a team I loved on software that I had worked for at this point, nearly 20 years on, and yeah. it was just taking off. It was one of the hardest things I, I did. I could have just sat there and been happy but if i couldn't pursue my vision for me it was a waste of time life is short you have to go after what you care about and so i i left apple and said okay i don't need apple i'm gonna i know what's next if they don't see it i'm gonna build it and so i started a new company vid labs and we ultimately sold, sold to samsung and uh, it became one of the versions of bixby um, and I'm very proud of on the technology side, we did things that no one has ever attempted. And in fact, even though it was nearly, so it's about eight years old now, uh -huh. nine, 10 years old, getting close to 10 years. Um, we did things that even the chat GPT large language models can't do use cases and interactions and experiences. We were about getting things done. So a user could have an app store filled with capsules created by other people apps. They could uh, enable certain apps that they cared and, and trusted and in a sense form their own assistant. And then they could perform tasks with this set of services, these set of uh, capsules that could do transactions and actions and side effects and it could blend together multiple services. Hmm. You know, ChatGPT can't 
execute, doesn't know about side effects and transactions. It's a very different framework. So mm -hmm. I actually think um, if people are working, if people are listening to you and working on large language models and want to know what opportunity, what's missing, go back and study some of the things that we did with Viv Labs. You can actually download um, still, I believe, at BixbyDevelopers.com an IDE that explains our approach. And the concepts there are ripe to be reinvented in this new landscape of mm -hmm. generative AI. Um, to bring, I, I often say AI is knowing and doing. You want an assistant who knows things and can do things, and you need both. And, and large language models are great on the knowing side, although accuracy and transparency is an issue, et cetera, but they're lame on the doing side. And chat, everyone says, well, what about ChatGPT plugins? At this stage, my response is lame lame you, you only can have three of them enabled and you have to put it in a mode just for that you can't be talking to general chat gpt and plugins at the same time there's so many things wrong with what what this initial start is and i think there's huge opportunity to mm -hmm. kind of rediscover the doing side and when you have both i will finally rest be at rest and say <laughs> that vision i had 30 years ago this month 30 years ago this month uh, will have been realized, but we're not, we're not there yet. We're about, we're getting in that, the right direction. <laughs> Are you thinking of starting a company that's uh, like a large language model focusing on, on kind of chat GPT, but more doing, is that something that's in, in your mind at all? Uh, who, me? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds I, like you got a good idea. <laughs> I always start companies uh, in stealth mode, so I won't tell you exactly what I will work on, but um, I, I'm also uh, known for being the first developer and founding member of change.org. Mm -hmm. Change.org is the world's largest petition platform uh, for good. We have more than half a billion members we reached wow. this year. Amazing. Um, and it, it brings, you know, it, through the simplest tool of a petition, um, it brings about positive change at large scales and at small scales. So what I would say, the hint that I will give you and what I'll give to other entrepreneurs is generative AI is great and there's lots more to do there. We're gonna spend 10 years really understanding it and evolving it so we can do things, not just know things and et cetera. And what the right interaction should be. Generative AI is great, but the world is going to be faced with complex global urgent issues, climate change, pandemic, hunger, poverty, water, human rights, animal rights, like these are major, major issues. And despite, you know, Mark Andreessen just came out with an article saying why AI will save the world. <laughs> my response is AI will be a tool, hopefully to help augment human intellect but AI is not going to solve our problems. We are going to have to solve our problems. It's not just a technology issue or it's not just, a, oh, you just have to do step one. No, we have to organize. We need to make better decisions, collective decisions at government level, at mm -hmm. individual and personal level. We need to change our mindset or we're not gonna survive as a species. Like literally, um, you know, 
pandemic, there's so many things going on in the world now, we need to get better at solving decisions. And so what I care about at this time in my life is yes, generative AI, absolutely. But how do we get past all of these major problems that we have in front of us? That's what interests me right now. Yeah, I think it's an important thing to focus on for sure. Well, um, look, I think that's the time we have now, Adam. I appreciate you coming on and sharing the story of inventing one of the most prominent and, and well-used technologies out and, and the work you've done with change.org, et cetera. And I, I wish you continued success and appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks so much, Ben. Appreciate it.